When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about other aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all podcast episodes, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love to have you join my Patreon group. Hosting a podcast takes a ton of time, resources, and effort, and the support through Patreon continues to make it possible. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. There is a Facebook group where we all chat books, and we are currently reading two advanced copies of books and chatting with the authors pre-publication. Thanks to those that already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Kim Fay about Love and Saffron, one of the most delightful books that I have read in a long while. Born in Seattle and raised throughout the Pacific Northwest, Kim lived in Vietnam for four years and still travels to Southeast Asia frequently. A former bookseller, she is the author of Communion, A Culinary Journey Through Vietnam, winner of the World Gourmand Cookbook Awards Best Asian Cuisine Book in the United States, and The Map of Lost Memories, an Edgar Award finalist for Best First Novel. She is also the creator and editor of a series of guidebooks on Southeast Asia. She now lives in Los Angeles. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Kim. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's launch day. <laughs> I'm very happy. How are you, Cindy? I am very happy too, because I loved your book so much and I can't wait to speak with you about it. So first, congratulations on launch day. That's super exciting. Thank you. And second, congratulations on being the number one February Indie Next pick. I always check as soon as I can to find out what the next month's picks are going to be. And as soon as I saw your book up there, number one, I was like, yay. So that's wonderful. It made, I mean, as I was a an independent bookseller for six years. And so this to me is an especially wonderful honor. Well, I was going to say that because I knew you had been a bookseller. And so you know how important it is to be picked by those booksellers. Nobody knows better than booksellers. No. And booksellers, they are the, they're not using algorithms. They're not picking books to, you know, meet a certain quota. They either love a book or they don't love a book. And if they love a book, they share it with everybody. And so that just 
I'm so excited about this. I think it's wonderful and so well-deserved because as I've said already, I loved your book and I cannot wait to talk more about it. So why don't we start with you giving me a quick summary of the book for those that won't have read it yet. Okay, so let's hop back to the early 1960s. We have Joan. She's a 27-year-old budding food writer in Los Angeles, and she writes a fan letter to a woman named Imogen, a 59-year-old magazine columnist who lives on an island near Seattle. Joan includes a packet of saffron and a recipe in her letter, and Imogen responds. Letters start flowing back and forth between these two women, and as they do, they embark on this journey. It's a culinary exploration, personal transformation, and they just they build this soul-deep friendship over the next couple years. It's just a beautiful friendship. I love everything that unfolds. Obviously, no spoilers, so I won't say any more than that, but can we talk about your inspiration for the book? Um there, it's a multi-part answer because the book itself was prompted by the pandemic. I was actually working on a completely different book when Los Angeles locked down in March of 2020. And the day after the lockdown was announced, I woke up and started writing this book. And three months later, I finished this book. It was just a tumble into another place, another time. I wanted to write, I knew from the get-go, I wanted to write a gift for two friends of mine. And so I sat down and that was what I was writing. That's, I guess, maybe the impetus or that's what got the book going. But it is very much steeped in personal inspirations. We have Joan, the young food writer. She was greatly inspired by Barbara Hansen. Barbara Hansen was a pioneering um, Los Angeles food writer in the 60s and 70s, and I stole much of her story. She is still out there today. Um, she has an Instagram account, Table Conversation, and if you hop on it, she her, her culinary curiosity is just voracious, and it spills over into the rest of her life. She's just a very open woman wanting to know more, 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 and so she really inspired the character of Joan who walks through the world in the very same way. As for Imogen, the older woman, she was inspired by my great aunt Emma. I wanted to write a just one of those practical Pacific Northwest women who they are, you know, they can go out, they can chop the firewood, they they keep life moving forward, but they're incredibly kind and warm-hearted people. And the reason my Aunt Emma also came into play is because that's her cabin on Camino Island that is in the book, she and my great-uncle Frank. And I spent my childhood weekends there. So a lot of what I put into the book were pieces of my life that gave me joy. And I think that's why so much joy comes through the book. And I think that's why it resonates with so many people. Definitely. I think one of the things that was on my mind while I was writing this was how important human connection is when times are dark. So we were at the beginning of the pandemic and times were very dark for so many people for so many different reasons. And even though I was writing about a different era, one example is uh, the women correspond about the Kennedy assassination. And as I was writing about how you know human connection really was important during that time of tragedy, I could feel the parallels with the present day. And so even though the time period is different, there are just there are certain things that are timeless. Those are our relationships, 
those are our friendships. Female friendship is one of the things that's very much an anchor in this book. Yes. And that's another thing I think I really liked about it because my friends are so important to me. But also you're referencing history. And I think there are certain events in history that people will always remember, such as the Kennedy assassination, such as the pandemic we're now going through. I think there are just things that will stand out. Other things get forgotten. But I like that you included some of those in the book. I think it's important to have a reminder that when these things happen, life does move forward. We continue. And it's when you're in the middle of it, it feels like it will never end, that life will never be the same. And of course, it won't be the same. But as much as we experience these, the bad side of it, we also, we discover new strengths. We build our relationships in, in new and different ways. And I wanted to capture that in this story. And I think it anchors your story as well. We know it's set in the 60s. But sometimes some of these books seem like they're just set in a vacuum. And so it's really nice to be able to kind of know what's happening around them. They are incorporating that into their letters, just like people actually would be who lived in the 60s. Yes. And I had to pick and choose because obviously (laughs) every year has so much to offer. And I had to think not only what would the women be paying attention to, you know, Emmy probably reads Life magazine, but she probably doesn't watch the news. Uh, Maybe her husband does. Joan probably doesn't watch the evening news. So what would be on their radar? And also, what would be on their radar when they were writing the letters? Because it's not like email where I write you, you write me, I write you, you write me, and it's just move, 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 move. It's one of them writes a letter, the other one doesn't respond for six weeks. So something could happen in that between period that might not be at the forefront of their mind when they sit down to write the letter. And so that was, you know, I I wanted to be careful and choose what made the most sense for the story. I like that. And I hadn't really thought about that part of it. I hadn't either until right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I love epistolary novels. That's the very first reason I picked your book up because I just love books written in letters. So did you have to go and read other books that are written in letters or did you know exactly how you wanted to do it? And then my second part of that question is, did you write all of the letters in order or did you end up having to move some around? Well, when I started writing the book, it just came out in letters. That was just the way the book wanted to be told. I didn't think one way or the other uh, when I began tapping on my laptop, a letter came out. And I'm, you know, obviously I've read 84 Charing Cross Road a million times. There are wonderful books like Meet Me at the Museum. I'm a f- huge fan of epistolary novels as well. But this one, the letters just felt right as I was telling this story. And then this book is an anomaly. I, I take a lot of time to write. I take years and years and years to write anything, <laughs> no matter what it is. I put it down. I pick it back up. I revise. I revise. This book was written start to finish in three months as is. That's amazing. Yes. It is. <laughs> Regardless of how long you take to write, that's amazing. You know, I don't think many people can do that. No. And I was very lucky because my agent and my editor saw the book for what it was. And I, I, I said this once that my editor, she's a master of nuance. So she was able to go into the book and not, the book was happy where it was as a story, but she was able to go in and just 
really work the nuances of the story to make these letters sing. The letters came out in the order they came out. I figured they probably had to because it's not like writing in standard chapters where different things can shift around, but because the women are responding to each other, you've got this kind of ebb and flow in the story. One of my favorite parts of the book was when Frances writes on Emmy's behalf after she's had surgery. Those <laughs> letters are so funny. And then you can see her just sitting over his shoulder dictating and, you know, he's writing all of it. He's crossing everything out. And I just got such a kick out of that. I just love thinking, you know, I did get my typewriters out and pluck around on them while I was writing this. And, you know, I you forget if you haven't been on a typewriter for a while that you can't just delete backtrack, cut, paste, you know, you've either got to cross things out, you've got to have some white out, you've got to have some, you know, erase tape. And so it was fun to capture those things that were a part of our lives until not very long ago. I was still writing letters in the 90s. I was still writing letters in the late 90s, actually early 2000s, because, you know, email wasn't what it is today. And it was just fun to, to recall and put not only recall, but then to, to put that on the page. I bet so. I bet those letters were really fun to write. Yeah. Francis was a, was a wonderful voice to bring out at that point. He was, um, you know, I hadn't, I wasn't writing in his voice. And when his voice came out, it was like, oh, hello, Francis, there you are. Well, as I said, I just loved him, and I loved that you had him write some of the letters and how funny his letters were. <laughs> I'm glad. Well, I know that food has played a large role in your life, but let's talk about that and then how you incorporated that into the book. When I talk about writing about food, I'm not really talking about writing about food, and I'll explain that. I'm talking about what food does. I love to write about food because food is so much a part of our human experience and our human connection. I doubt there's a person in this world who's never shared a meal with another person. And to sit down at a table with a friend, with a stranger, you're always going to find some point of connection. And so as I was writing about the food in the book, I was keeping in mind what food means to me. I have a dozen dishes that are my favorites from my childhood, and none of them have to do with the food. I mean, obviously canned tamales. That has nothing to do with the dish itself, but it does have to do with the fact that that's what my grandpa fed me. When I would go stay with him in his trailer in Bothell, my sister and I would stay and he would feed us canned tamales and black licorice. And that's what we lived on. <laughs> An interesting combination. A grandpa combination, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Exactly. But it's all, when I think about my travels, if I name a dish I love from my travels, I, I love the flavor, of course. I'm not going to love something I don't like the taste of, but it's more about who I ate that food with, the conversations we had, the time in my life when I was sharing that meal. And so I really wanted to capture that in the book, um, the way that food can ignite our curiosity and bring us together. That made me think about books because I'd read some of what you'd said about food and it being a connector. And I think that way about books. I have found in the last seven or eight years as I've been much more involved in the book world and reading a lot more, that anywhere I go, a group to speak to, or wherever I am, if you can bring up a book and just get started talking, then you have something to talk about. And I think food is the same way. And so I really kind of kept analogizing them when I was thinking about it. I 100% agree with you on that because there is books or conversations. You know, a meal is one kind of conversation. A 
an exchange over a meal and, and also talking about food, but books are just a very unique conversation. You meet somebody who loves the same book you loved and you talk about it as if you've got a third person with you, a third best friend. And that best friend is also a part of the conversation because they're speaking as well as you speaking about them. And I obviously, I mean, secretly would love to write a book about books as well (laughs) in the same way, because I had that experience when I worked at the Elliott Bay Book Company in Seattle in the 90s. I spent five years just talking to people about books, and I was in heaven. That was my idea of paradise. Exactly. And I think both books and food are such connectors and they just provide you automatic conversation. So I've just found, because sometimes, you know, you, you join a group of people, especially like if I'm talking to a group, so I'm seated at a lunch table and I don't really know any of them. And it used to sort of intimidate me. But now I just realize all I have to do is say, what has everybody read lately? <laughs> yes, yes, and then yes. it's off to the races and there is no problem. And so mm-hmm. that's just such a nice thing to fall back on no matter where I am, the airport or restaurant, an event anything. All you have to do is say, have you read such and such or what have you read lately? And off you go. And I think food's the same way. Definitely. Definitely. And with just both with food and books, I think because we have such intimate relationships with them that they make them wonderful tools. Sounds like a, you know, kind of a clinical word, but they're wonderful tools for connection. I think that's right. And then I was also curious because you did work at a bookstore, how that informs your writing. Have you done things differently or thought about different things because you worked in a bookstore? Oh, yes. (laughs) I would think so. Well, and I also started working at Elliott Bay when I was in my early 20s. So it was an incredibly formative time in my life. Up to that point, I'd been a massive reader, but my reading had all been very limited to what I was exposed to. And I was raised in small towns, small town libraries, small town bookstores, you know, paperback exchanges in strip malls. So I read a lot, but I read mostly romance. I read a lot of teen novels. I was very happy. I'm very happy with my reading childhood. I would not change one page of it. But when I got to the bookstore, I learned how much bigger the world of books is. And that was what was exciting to me. I, you know, up until that point, from the age of 10 to the age of 20, I wrote probably a dozen books and they were all very much the same because of what I'd been exposed to. And so once I started reading new authors at the bookstore, I was reading people from different countries. I was reading people who wrote literary fiction, people who wrote different kinds of genre fiction. And with every book I read, it opened me up as a writer because it showed me the possibilities. It showed me how craft can be such an intentional part of your writing. And by the time I left the bookstore, I was still me, but I was a completely different reader and I was a completely different writer. I like the way you say that it opened you up to a whole new world of books. I always read a ton too, and I worked at an indie bookstore here in Houston Mm -hmm. much later in my life than in my 20s. And I already had kind of started reading wider with joining Facebook groups and some of those things. But still, when I came to the bookstore, I was amazed at how many books were coming out every single week. Like I felt like I'd read a lot till I started working there. (laughs) And then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just amazing. But it does expose you to so many different books. And I would also think as you watched what would sell and what resonated with people and what people came back and spoke about would really help you think, okay, it's important to include this. Maybe this doesn't need to be included. Mm -hmm. I think 
Yes, but not on a real practical level, more on a spiritual level. People came back for the books that moved them in whatever way it did. You know, it could be it excited them because it was adventurous, or it could be it touched their heart because it was a beautiful family story. And it it taught me that no matter what you're trying and no matter where you're going with your writing, if your heart isn't a part of it, then it's never going to connect with a reader. And that was, I think, by, by seeing so many different types of readers connect with so many different types of books, it allowed me to understand that there was more than just one way to put your heart into something. I like that. That's a good way to think about it. Well, I always love to talk about titles and covers. I think a lot more (laughs) goes into them (laughs) than people ever realize. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how Love and Saffron became the title, and then I'd like to talk about the cover. Okay. It was actually when I first started, I think I had, in my my head, I had called it for Mrs. Fortier with Love and Saffron. I had just taken that from there. And then that just seemed like a real mouthful. And so I took the beginning off, but it would, this was my working title. Oh wow! And I'll be honest, if my editor had said, can we try another title? I would have been fine. That happened with my first novel, but everybody seemed to be happy with it. And so it does, it does encapsulate the book in many ways because it is a book filled with love. And then it has something a little bit different. Although I have had one, one reader said, I thought it was a book about Indian food. So I can see we'll get some confusion. (laughs) But this title was, I guess, organic to the book, much in the way that the book writing process was. This title came to the book organically, and everybody was happy with it at the publishing house. So that that was where it stayed. That's nice. I always find that titles either are what they were at the beginning, or you have to go through a hundred different ones to settle on something new. It's either super easy or it's super hard and there's nothing in between. Mm -hmm. There is no, oh, we took our second choice. It was, we took our 845th choice. (laughs) And I just love the cover. I love the font that the words are written in. I love the food. I love the purple. Do you just love it? I do love it. I do. And it's funny because there was a lot of back and forth. Should it be more uh, women's fiction looking, Um, you know, a little more playful? Should it, because there are so many different elements of the book. And then the designers gave us, you know, a few choices. And it wasn't a matter of liking or disliking. It was more, is the heart of the book being captured? And then they started working with this image. And it's funny because I'm a very literal person. And I'm like, well, where are the muscles? Well, where are the this? Designers do what they do. They're, They're the experts. And they explained they were trying to capture the spirit of the book. You know, the warmth of a meal that connection of food. The book just feels like a small gift when, you know, the finished version of it, you hold it and it just, it's small and elegant and it invites you in. So I am incredibly pleased with this. I think it's just stunning. And I think it does make a great gift because it's so pretty and you just want to hand it to somebody and be like, I know you're going to love it. (laughs) And the other thing I love about it is it isn't very long. I feel like we are in this period of so many lengthy books that really could stand to be edited down. And I love that it's shorter, but there's still so much in it. I mean, we could talk for hours about your book. You know, there's a lot in it. There's a lot to it, but it's not 700 pages. No, I actually wrote this with the intention of writing a book that the friends I was writing it for could read it in an afternoon. 
that was one of my goals. I thought, I want a book that they can brew a cup of tea, sit down with the pages that I printed out for them at the time, and just fall into this story. But I, I, it was important to me that it be very self-contained. Well, I like that. And I think I did read it in a day. And that's always such a nice feeling. And I think a compliment for a book, if you can make it through in a day. You know, if it's that good, you don't want to put it down. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. I did. It's just a beautiful story. Thank you. Well, what are you working on now? I am working on what I would call a compliment to this book. It's definitely not a sequel. It's definitely not, it's not a continuation of the characters, but I want to continue exploring the different elements of female friendship. Female friendship is so important to me. My, my, my friends, they just, they nurture me. They uplift me. I've had to turn my phone over because the texts are just going crazy this morning. They were my rock that kept me steady during the pandemic. And I feel that there's so much beauty in female friendships in so many more ways that I can explore that. And so the next book will take place in the early 1950s with a different variation and also inspiration from my family. It's my Grammy this time. And I just, I want to continue this exploration that I started with Love and Saffron. Oh, good. I can't wait for that. I'm writing away. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be another three month or so you can get it out there quick. I have my fingers crossed. <laughs> well, what have you read lately that you really liked? Oh, gosh. This was a hard, but you know, I always go blank. So I actually brought some books over to pile in front of me so that my mind wouldn't go blank when I was asked this question. My reading is really all over the board. I tend to read genre, literary, um, everything in between. I'm finishing Richard Powers' The Overstory, which is very dense. And has taken me a very long time, but was well worth the time that I've spent with it. It's definitely a writer's book. It is an exercising craft, but also just a beautiful meditation on nature and our place in this world. I also just finished Dorothy West's The Wedding, which is a, a classic. And wow, you know, you would think a book about just a few people getting ready for a wedding. What can you do with that? But Dorothy West, again, such a craftswoman. The story is so beautifully written and so engaging. And then I'm, I, I've just reread because, you know, Love and Saffron brought me back to this book, but also it's something I do reread regularly, which is Laurie Colwyn's Happy All the Time. It's one of my all-time favorite books. It's another one of those books that is just made to kind of take you in and hold you close and give you a little bit of light when you need it. So those are those are just a few. I mean, I have a, a stack of dozens beside my bed, but those are a couple that I've read recently. Well, I always love to hear what authors recommend because it usually introduces me to some new books that I haven't heard of before or haven't read yet. And so it makes my pile just grow larger and larger. Same. I, I love oh, book, book recommendations, though they're dangerous. Well, and it goes back to our conversation earlier. You know, you can talk about books forever, you yes. know, and it just goes and goes and goes. Exactly. Kim, I'm just absolutely delighted that you joined me today. Again, as you can tell, I loved your book and it's just been wonderful to talk with you all about it. And I appreciate your coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, I appreciate it too. This was, a, this was just a joy today. Thank you so much. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily... That's how long it takes me to tell a story. 
My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.